This is God's word. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and we want to be like that person described who trembles at your word, who uh, humbles himself before you. And so we come asking for your help to do that. We want to receive your word, like James says, with meekness because your word is able to save our souls. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would be here helping each one of us individually to receive what you have for us, changing us, renewing us, as we know he loves to do, and glorifying Christ. In his name I pray, amen. When I say the word fear, most of us, at least initially, probably have a negative reaction. We all know what it's like to be scared. We probably all know what it's like to be utterly terrified. I remember at a time, I was probably 10 or 11, and I was staying at a friend's house who had cable, and we didn't have cable growing up, so I got to watch things at his house we wouldn't be able to watch at home. And I wa- we watched this horror movie. And I remember for a period of time afterwards, I was terrified. It terrified me. We all know what it's like to be scared. When I, word, when I add the word God to fear, fear God, we sometimes have a hard time putting those two things together. We understand that we're to love God and serve God and worship God and trust God and believe in God and hope in God. All of these things live for God, but to fear God? Or maybe we would agree in theory that it's a good thing to fear God. That's a good thing, right? If you've read your Bible much, you you realize that it's in the Bible. But quickly, when we begin describing what it means to fear God, or when we hear people describe what it means to fear God, it doesn't sound like fear at all. It doesn't sound like any resemblance of fear or reverence at all. But when you open your Bible... Very quickly, you see this theme all throughout, from beginning to end. You open Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Number, Deuteronomy, the books of Moses, and you see the men and women of God feared God. As you make your way through the entire Old Testament, you see this theme over and over and over again. And God advocates it. He wants us to relate with him in fear. He says things like Isaiah chapter 8. He says, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy, let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. God advocates this kind of response to him. He wants us to live before him and walk before him in the fear of him. 
Psalm 147, verses 10 and 11, tells us the kind of people that God blesses, the kind of people that God favors, the kind of people that God is pleased with. It says, God is not pleased with the strength of a horse or the legs of a man, but God finds pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. The book of Proverbs is, right, that's, that's like the, the, the main wisdom book in the Bible written by Solomon, the man who sought wisdom above all things. He wanted wisdom above riches and power. And Solomon tells us in the opening chapter, which is an introduction for the whole book of Proverbs, he tells us that if you want to get on the path of wisdom, you can't get past the starting blocks unless you fear God. He says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise instruction. Relating to the fear of the Lord, it doesn't go away in the New Testament, right, with the coming of Jesus. It doesn't go away with with the coming of Christ. Christ is the eternal Son of God. He became a man. He lived among us. He became like us in every way. And yet you see the disciples relate with Jesus in some very, very stark ways at times in fear. One of my favorite stories And I just read it again recently. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus and his disciples set out across the sea of Galilee to go from one side to the other, and Jesus is tired, so he takes a nap. He goes into the stern of the boat to take a nap. And you guys know what happens, right? A great windstorm comes across the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples are scared for their lives. They say as much. They go to Jesus and say, we're dying up here. Don't you care? And Jesus stands up, calmly, and he speaks to the wind and tells it to stop, and immediately it stopped. And it's fascinating. What did it do? Did it, did, it, did it relieve the disciples of their fear? It actually didn't. It says, after Jesus did this, they looked at him, and, and they were filled with great fear. And they said, who is this that even commands the wind and the sea, and they obey him? Even after the death and resurrection of Christ, fear doesn't go away. Relating to God and the fear of the Lord doesn't go away. Revelation chapter one, the beloved disciple John, who of all the disciples seemed to have, maybe he just, I mean, he referred to himself as that, but he, he seemed to have a unique relationship with Christ. In Revelation chapter one, he sees Jesus, the glorified, risen Christ, and he does not run up and give him a high five. He doesn't do a chest bump. He falls down like a dead man. Jesus, of course, goes over, puts his hand on his shoulder and says, don't be afraid, it's me. But his initial response was one of fear. You might say the basic and most fundamental way we relate with God is to fear him. And in a day in which people are so fearful of a hundred things, A thousand things. One thing is needed above all else, to fear the Lord, to fear him. In fact, the sign of those who are lost, we're told in Psalm 36, and Paul quotes this in in Romans chapter three, the sign of those who are lost without God is that they have no fear of God before their eyes. I recently heard someone say, that the greatest malady today in the church is that there's no fear of God as God. 
Think about it. People are afraid of all sorts of things. They're afraid of economic calamity, whether personal or national or global, right? People are afraid of COVID, of course. They're afraid of social unrest. People are afraid of government, our current president or a future president. People are afraid of a future that seems more uncertain now than maybe five years ago or even a year ago. People are afraid of global warming and the destruction of the planet. And on top of this, the people are just afraid of the, the things that people have always been afraid of, what people think about them, and if their friend still likes them, and, and loved ones that may die, and so forth. People are afraid. People are afraid, afraid, afraid. And let's face it, the devil and evil people possessed by the devil want you and I afraid. So what's God's medicine for this pandemic of fear? And it is a pandemic. Far worse than COVID. What is God's vaccine? What's God's inoculation for fear? It's a greater fear. It's a greater fear. Let me explain. It's the kind of fear that would move into the foreground and push all the other things we're afraid of into the background. The kind of fear that if it's in the foreground, it helps to steady you as you approach the other things that are in the background that we really have to face and walk through and and challenges we face and and, and are going to have to deal with. The main point of our text today is this. It's verse 17. It says this, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Exile, I think, just referring to our journey through this life. We're exiles. We're on a journey, right? It's like Pilgrim's Progress. We're on our journey through this world to the celestial city. Throughout the time of your exile, conduct yourselves with fear. So live a life of fear. Now, we're going to unpack this. You're like, wait a second. I thought we're not supposed to fear. All right, we're going to unpack this. But live a life of fear. Live in such a way that you fear the Lord, that you fear God. This is the main point. And the rest of the text shows us three strategies for living in the fear of the Lord. Three strategies for living in the fear of the Lord. Let's just take them one at a time. Strategy number one. How do we live in the fear? How do we conduct ourselves in the fear of the Lord throughout our time of exile? Strategy number one, fear living in a way that displeases your Father in heaven. Have you ever been so enamored with somebody or or just like somebody so much that you're always nervous about how you're behaving around them because you always wanted to impress them or please them. If you're an adolescent, you probably did that at one point, right? We've all struggled with that at some time, probably. Verse 17 starts with this. If you, ad- if you call on him as father, or if you address God as father, To address God as Father means to draw near to him and speak to him and relate with him as your Father. Not just as God, he is God, but as your Father. There's a Latin phrase, caram deo. Caram deo 
Karam Deo refers to something that takes place in the presence of God or before the face of God. Karam Deo actually means before the face of God. R.C. Sproul said we are to live our lives, Karam Deo, always before the face of God, in the presence of God, for the glory of God. I remember one time listening to a man named Peter Hitchens. I don't know if you've ever heard of Peter Hitchens. He was a very prominent, outspoken, uh, smart, witty atheist. Uh, He died a few years ago. Um, But he talked about his problem with the concept that God was all-present, all-knowing, all-seeing. He said it sounded so horrible because it sounded like God was this, that he was under constant surveillance and continual subjection usually reinforced by fear in the shape of infinite vengeance. So God, in in, in Hitchens' mind, was big brother, always watching, ready to pounce with vengeance. Right? Always scrutinizing. God was the big cop in the sky with surveillance cameras everywhere, watching, ready to arrest, ready to punish. Now, for Christians, of course, our understanding of the ever-present God is so different than this, isn't it? It's not just a little different. It is 180 degrees different. We understand that the God who sees and knows all things and is present with us is our Father who loves us, who cares for us, Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer to address God as our Father. And what's the first petition Jesus tells us to pray? Hallowed be your name. What does it mean for God's name to be hallowed? To be regarded as holy, to be revered, to be honored, to be respected deeply. Martin Luther struggled to understand the goodness of, what, of fearing God. It's like, it, for him, it seemed hard to, to grasp that. How could it be a good thing to fear God? And, and he made a helpful distinction, I think. He made a distinction between what he called servile fear and what he called filial fear. Filial is the, the Latin word for family. So he said there's a servile kind of fear and there's a filial kind of fear. A servile fear is the kind of fear that a prisoner would have for a tormentor. Prisoners in prison and the tormentor comes in once a day to whip him or beat him and torment him. Right? It's the kind of fear that a slave would have for a malicious master. On the other hand, filial fear is the kind of fear that a child would have for his father. Luther, Luther saw, this, this, uh, um, saw this love, the kind of fear that a, a, a child would have for a father that he loves. Luther saw it as a tremendous respect that a young boy would have for his mother or father so that he wanted to obey them. He wanted to. He didn't obey out of, I'm going to get you, right? Dad's going to get me if I don't but out of a reverence and love and honor and fear. 
It is a fear of offending, but not because the child's afraid of torture or punishment, but because the child doesn't want to displease the one he loves so much. That's how we're to relate with God. As our Father, the, the, God who, the Father who sees us and knows us and is with us at all times, we want to live in, before him in such a way that we don't want to displease him. We know that even Jesus, when he walked in the flesh on the earth, had a reverent fear of the Father, Hebrews 5, 7. It wasn't a servile fear, of course. Jesus wasn't worried that he's going to be punished by the Father, but it was the fear of a son for a dearly loved and honored Father. It was born of respect of the highest magnitude that Jesus, the eternal Son, had for his eternal Father. When you and I are adopted into God's family, he becomes our Father, and we become his dearly loved children. And something huge shifts in our hearts. Right? We, last Sunday night, we talked about, at Brian and Carmen's house, God's seed planted in us. Which means you become a child of God. And he puts something in you, not just something, someone, namely the Holy Spirit, who puts a stamp in our hearts that we are now his children. It's not something we can make happen. It's something that God does. And it is glorious. The shift that takes place in our hearts is not small. Prior to being born again, prior to having that seed planted in us, prior to having the Holy Spirit put in our hearts, the Bible describes us as hostile to God. It describes us as enemies of God. We don't want to do what we're told. We don't want God to tell us to do. We don't, we don't want God to tell us what to do. We don't want anyone to. We want to do what we want to do. And if there is a fear of God, it is that servile fear, which is actually just a veneer covering over hatred for him. But the amazing transformation that takes place when we become children of God is as deep as the deepest ocean. It is glorious. Whose baby is that? My goodness. Um, sorry, sweetheart. Uh, when God in his mercy causes us to be born again, it is not, it's not some light superficial transformation that takes place. It is not. God puts his holy, God takes out the heart of stone that is hostile toward him. And he puts in a heart of flesh that is now responsive to him and loves him. And he puts his Holy Spirit in us. And he puts the fear of God in our hearts so that we don't want to turn away from him. And we want to please him. He puts new desires and new loves in our heart. And of course, we don't perfectly live those out, but that's what he does. He puts those things in us, and the rest of our lives is a life of transform, being transformed into the likeness of Christ, where those things are more and more planted in us and expressed through us Amen. by the power of the Spirit. The transformation is enormous, and Paul knew it well. Prior to his conversion, Paul hated Christ. 
He sought to destroy the church of Christ. Afterward, you see all over in his letters, he has such a burning desire in everything to please Christ and please his Father. 2 Corinthians 5.9 says, Paul, this is Paul, he says, we make it our aim to please him. Colossians 1, he urges the people of Colossae, make it your aim to please him in all things. And so, strategy number one, we want to fear displeasing our gracious, merciful, loving Father. Strategy number two, fear living as if there is no final judgment. Fear living in such a careless way that you don't realize and live in light of final judgment. Let me read verse 17. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. Fear living as if there's no judgment. And many Christians believe there will be no judgment. They believe they will just skate through without giving an account to God. And it's not true. Now it is most certainly true that you and I are not to fear punishment on the day of judgment, or we can, we can approach that day with confidence in Christ. We, we don't need to fear that we're going to be sent to hell. 1 John 4, 17 and 18 says, By this is love perfected in us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in the wor- this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. There it is. Fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So there's no fear of punishment. But our text clearly says, because our Father will judge each one impartially, conduct yourselves with fear. So what does this mean? For the believer, of course, like I just said, there's no fear of punishment, but there is a sober reverential view that ought to come into our minds when we think of standing before God and him going through the books that have recorded our lives. And therefore, we're to conduct our lives with fear. Paul said in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10, he says, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and each one will give an account for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And then he says this, therefore, Knowing the fear of the Lord. So he, he connects, it, he connects judge, judgment seat of Christ with having this reverence, this fear of God. So to conduct our lives with fear, I think, is to live conscious of that future day when we will stand before our master. And of course, we long to hear, don't we? Well done good and faithful servant. We want to hear those words from our loving, gracious God and Father and Master. What does this judgment include? Well, verse 17 says that the Father judges impartially. 
He judges impartially. In, in other words, there will, there's not going to be one standard for some people and a completely different standard for others. His judgment is without partiality. He also judges each person, each one, right? Nobody will be able to call in tardy that day. We will all stand before him. Each one will stand before the living God. Each one will give an account. Romans 14, 10 to 12. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Each one give an account of himself. We also see that it's our deeds that will be judged. The things we actually do, right? The things that we actually do, the, the doings, the things that we do in our lives. Again, Paul affirms this in 2 Corinthians 5.10 when he says each one will receive reward for what is due to him for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Not just, not just the evil things, but the good things too. We're gonna stand before God. He's gonna judge us. He's gonna give us reward based on what we've done. And I realize this is sometimes hard to understand. Some might say, well, what about passages like John 5.24 where Jesus says those who believe will not be judged? How do we reconcile these two truths? And I think here's the point of judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. When we, stand, when we as Christians stand before him, our deeds will prove the genuineness of our faith and we will receive reward based on what we've done. J.I. Packer explains this in his classic book called Knowing God, and I urge you to get that book. <laughs> it's a fantastic book. He says this, final judgment will be according to our works, the things that we've done, our doings, our whole course of life. The relevance of our works is not that they will ever merit our salvation. They fall far too short of perfection to do that. But they do provide an index of what is in the heart. In other words, what is the real nature of each person? Our Father is the judge of all the earth. We, will, we, we sing this song here. I, I, Luke added these last two verses, I don't know, a couple years ago, and I I'm thankful he did. Um, justified fully through Calvary's blood. Oh, what a standing is mine, Right? We are justified fully through the, through the blood of Jesus and therefore we are free from condemnation now and forever. But we are not free from our Father's assessment of our lives as Christians. And that's a sobering thing. And we ought to keep that before us. We will stand before our, our God and our Master. How we conduct our lives matters. How we live as children of God matters. So fear living as if there's no final judgment. Fear living that way. Fear living carelessly as though you and I may do just whatever we please because, hey, we're going to go to heaven someday anyways. There are many who live that way. 
There are many who live that way. Conduct yourselves with fear, knowing that you will stand before your father, who is an impartial judge. Strategy number three, fear living as if the sacrifice of Jesus is cheap. Fear living as if the sacrifice of Jesus is cheap. And I think that's probably Peter's main emphasis here. Listen to what he says. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. The word ransom here is huge. In those times, if somebody was a prisoner, a ransom would be paid in order to release them. The word ransom simply means to be free by payment of a debt. Conduct yourselves with fear, knowing that you have been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. Now that sounds strange to us. We're like, wait a second. If I've been ransomed with the blood of Jesus, that ought to free me from all fear. But again, it shows us the kind of fear that we want to have, that we must have. Fear that our lives would make others believe that the sacrifice of Jesus is insignificant and not a precious thing. I don't know about you. I don't want my life to say that. I don't want my life to communicate that to the world around me. He says he's a Christian, but man, I don't know. Doesn't seem like a big deal. Notice what Peter compares the blood of Jesus with. Not just any perishable thing. Peter doesn't say, hey, you weren't, you weren't ransomed with perishable things like wood, hay, and stubble. He says you were not ransomed with perishable things like silver and gold. Precious metals. Things that are precious. They've been precious since the beginning. They are precious still today. Something that always has value. Jesus said, or excuse me, Peter said, you are not ransomed with those things, perishable things. Even, even precious metals will perish someday. You were ransomed with the blood of Christ. We've been redeemed, ransomed, purchased with something infinitely more precious than gold, silver, diamonds, rubies, and so forth. Of course, speaking of the blood of Christ, it's referring to the payment Jesus made by giving up his life. If you heard someone paid a debt for you, if, if you just, just heard, uh, you know, like you got home today and you had a text or a phone call or, or, a, or a note on your door and somebody said, I paid this debt for you and you knew that if that debt wasn't paid, there would be legal trouble, you'd be punished for it. How would you respond? Well, it kind of depends on how big the debt was, right? If it was 10 or 15 bucks, you'd probably say thank you you'd pay him back, and then you'd go on with your life. But if you heard the debt was a billion dollars, you might respond differently. <laughs> you might fall on the ground and weep for joy. 
at the mercy shown you. Christian, the cost to secure your redemption was the infinite, excuse me, infinitely valuable life of the eternal Son of God. And we are to fear living in such a way that we don't magnify that. How do we do this? Well, notice it says we were ransomed from, quote, feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. The word feudal simply means useless or purposeless. Now, some commentators think that what's being referred to here is, since it was probably primarily a Jewish audience that Peter wrote this to, that he's just talking about the, forf- the Jewish forefathers. You were inherited from living under the law and all the accoutrements of, of, of that. Others think it's meant to be taken more, more generally that we were ransomed generally from futility, from a life of purposeless and meaning, purposelessness and meaninglessness and uselessness. And we were ransomed for a life of God-glorifying purpose and meaning. I love the way that Paul puts it in Titus 2.14. He says this, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. Remember earlier how I said we'll be judged by our works? Wouldn't it be better to be zealous for good works? and then realize we're going to stand before God someday, and he's going to look at the books of our life, it'd be better to be zealous for good works. We've been ransomed from lawlessness, from futility, and we've been ransomed for God to be his people and to be zealous for good works. The blood of Christ is not cheap, and so we shouldn't live as though it is. Don't live as though God paid $50 or $5,000 or even $5 million for your soul. He paid the ultimate price to redeem you and make you his. This, of course, is a gift of God's grace. You can't pay him back. You're not meant to try to pay him back. We shouldn't try to pay him back, okay? Amen, we shouldn't try to pay God back. It is a gift of his grace but I pray you'd be awakened to the glory of Christ and fear diminishing his glory by how you live. So you and I are to conduct ourselves with fear during the time of our exile. We're to live with God uppermost in our minds. We're to live in the fear of the Lord uppermost in our minds throughout our days. Specifically, Live before God as our Father that we revere and want to please. And live before God as our judge before whom we will stand and give an account. And live before God the Son as our Redeemer who laid his life down to redeem us for himself and to redeem us from futility and lawlessness and to redeem us for a life of zeal to do good works. If you take God out of the picture, <clears throat> just remove God, well, we're not gonna do this, but if you take God out of the picture, 
life is very frightening. There are lots of things to be afraid of. Tons of things to be afraid of. If God is in the background, if God's in the background, like he's in our lives, right? But he's kind of in the background. There's lots of things to be afraid of. If God is small and can't do much without your help, (laughs) there's lots of things to be afraid of. If God is not sovereign, there's lots of things to be afraid of. If God is not your father, there's lots of things to be afraid of, right? J.I. Packer said, if you want to know how well somebody understands Christianity, talk to them about God as their father and being a child of God. If we're not children of God, there's tons of things to be afraid of. And if God is not, think about this, if God is not judge, there's lots of things to be afraid of. How, how could we, how do we know that he's going to make everything right in the end? Justice is perverted often in this world, isn't it? There are things many of us are praying about right now. Lord, may your kingdom come. May you bring justice now. But we can know for sure that there will be cosmic eternal justice in the end. No doubt. Because God will judge each one impartially. He will make everything right. If he is not judge of all the earth, there's a lot of things to be afraid about. Go through life tepid and we're not sure if it's going to work out in the end. No, God is judge. And if Christ is not a powerful redeemer who saves to the uttermost through his shed blood, there's a lot to be afraid of. But if we live in the light of these things, if we live in the light of God our Father who's watching and we want to please him and we live in the light of this great day, called the great day, sometimes in the Bible, when we will stand before him as not only our father, but our judge and our savior and give an account. And if we live before God as our redeemer who purchased us at the great cost of his own dear son, then we can live free from the fear of all these other things. Or at least they, put, they, get, they get pushed in the background, right? And we walk toward them in the fear of the Lord. I remember uh, as a kid, I had an older brother, two years older. We, we had a great relationship growing up, and we still do. But um, he did this a couple times, kind of, uh, kind of as a joke, kind of to help me, I think. I think, I don't know, maybe not. But if I got hurt, we were playing basketball or something, sprained my ankle. He did this at least twice, I can remember. He, would, he came up to me and said, hey, Josh, listen, I tell you what, if I punch you in the nose, your ankle won't hurt anymore. <laughs> right? Good point, okay? You might have a broken nose then. All right. Um, we need to have the fear of God supplant all these other fears and push them off the throne so that he stands there. Amen. What does Jesus say? Don't fear those who can kill your body and they can do nothing else after that. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. 
Think about that. Don't fear those who can only kill you. <laughs> kind of funny, kind of like, well, okay. Rather fear God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Let's walk in the fear of the Lord. And let us be fearless people in the world because we're walking in the fear of him. Psalm 86.11 says, I love this prayer. I pray this all the time. I heard somebody else say, this is how I pray, and I'm like, I'm gonna start praying like that too. Unite my heart to fear your name. Divided hearts, right? We're kind of worried about this and this and this and this. Oh yeah, and then we got God there too, but this, like all these things. No, Lord, Lord, unite my heart to fear your name. Let's pray like that. Let's pray this prayer. Let's pray this prayer even right now. Amen? Let's pray.